Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at Hebrews chapter 4 in my Bible. And I'll invite you to be finding Hebrews chapter 4 in your Bible as well. Last week, our Bible reading schedule took us to these passages here in Hebrews. And I, this morning, want to preach from those passages in Hebrews. As part of our preaching theme for this year, we are spending time with Jesus Coming to know Jesus better here in 2018. We're going to do that this morning from the book of Hebrews. It's great to see everybody this morning. So glad and delighted that you are here. Especially happy to have our visitors and guests with us. Appreciate it so much that you've come to worship with us here on this first day of the week. We hope that you are being edified as we all together seek to glorify our Father in heaven. I hope that you are ready for these next couple of minutes to focus carefully on the Word of God. Because we're talking about some things today that I consider to be kind of some of the more meaty things of the Word. And so today's not a day for lazy listening. Instead, let's center our minds carefully on the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, read with me beginning in verse 14. In Hebrews 4 verse 14, the writer says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What if I told you that there was a work of Christ that is mostly ignored and overlooked, and just really not thought about very much. Somebody they would say, an overlooked work of Jesus Christ? What are you talking about? That possibly can't be. Well, let's just stop and think about some of the various works of Christ. Savior of the world. I think we're all pretty good with that, and we talk about that, and we know about that. What about Jesus as the head of the church? Check. We, we know about that, talk about that. What about Jesus as Lord of lords, and... King of kings, double check on that. We talk about that all the time. What about Jesus as the sacrificial Lamb of God? Probably going to say some stuff about that in a few moments when we take the Lord's Supper. We're good in all of those areas about Jesus. But what about the work of Jesus Christ as high priest? The Hebrew writer just got done saying that Jesus is your high priest. You know, there's not a lot of songs in our hymnal that praise Jesus' work as the great high priest. But I'm beginning to think that maybe there ought to be. Because in a book of the Bible that was written specifically to help saints who were discouraged, saints who were thinking about quitting altogether, the Hebrew writer believed that he could help encourage those folks by talking to them about Jesus Christ As the high priest. In fact, that passage we just read there in Hebrews chapter 4 is really the centerpiece of this book. As he begins this lengthy discussion that's going to run through the first ten verses of chapter 5, it's going to take a little bit of a detour in chapter 6, but it resumes at the very end of chapter 6. Look at chapter 6 verse 20, talking about Jesus. He has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wow! A priest after the order of Melchizedek! Who's Melchizedek? 
exactly is a priest and what do they do? Well, the Hebrew writer's audience, they would have known. They would have known the answer to those questions. And I believe the things that he talks about in these chapters provided for them the encouragement and the perseverance that they needed to continue on in Christ. And I think in much the same way, that if we will take the time to understand who this Melchizedek fella is, and what it is that priests do, and how all of that then relates to Jesus, I believe that we as well, we will be encouraged by what the book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus, our great high priest. This morning the game plan is simple. I want to just work through Hebrews, the seventh chapter. That was part of our reading last week. What did you take from that when you read Hebrews 7? Did you take anything from that? I want us to come to understand what the Hebrew writer's audience came to understand, that we do have a great high priest who can indeed sympathize with our weaknesses and who is working on our behalf even right now. Let's just begin all of that by figuring out who this Melchizedek fella is. There's a lot said about this guy. His name just pops up over and over again. Who is this fellow? Well, let's read there. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, the writer says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Just stop right there. Now, we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, where we meet Melchizedek for the first and really, I think, the only time. And we could read the account there, but I really think these three verses here that the Hebrew writer gives us, I think they sum things up pretty well. Abraham had went to rescue his nephew Lot, who'd been taken hostage. There was this battle that had taken place. Abraham was successful. They're now on their way home from that battle. Abraham meets this fellow named Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the city that will later more famously be known as Jerusalem. That's a little marginal note you might want to write down. This Melchizedek is somewhat of a... He's somewhat of a mysterious figure in Scripture. Because really here, without, without any introduction, without any background, without any warning, psh, bam, there he is. There he is. Abraham runs right into this Gentile man who surprisingly is not a pagan. Most Gentiles in that time would have been pagans. This man's not a pagan. He is a worshiper of the Almighty God. And in fact, not only is he a worshiper of the Almighty God, He is a priest of the Almighty God. And that, of course, has caused lots of speculation about Melchizedek, particularly verse 3 there, where it says that he is without father and mother and genealogy. That's led people to say all kinds of things about Melchizedek. Some have said maybe that means, maybe that means he's an angel. Some have even said maybe that means he's Jesus. And I guess my response to that would simply be what's said down in verse 6 when it says that Melchizedek, this man who does not have descent, he is described there as a man. 
He is not an angel. He is not deity. He is simply a man. And so when the Hebrew writer says that he doesn't have genealogy and doesn't have descent, what does he mean? Well, he's employing a figure of speech to say that he was a priest despite not having priestly lineage. One brother wrote the following. He put it this way. He says, without father and without mother does not mean that Melchizedek didn't have a natural birth. It simply means that he was a high priest without the lineage that was required for the Aaronic priesthood. That he was appointed by God under an entirely different arrangement. And I do think that that is correct. Maybe I would illustrate it this way. I can never be the king of England via my lineage because I have neither father nor mother that is descended from the house of Windsor. Or at least I don't think I do. And none of us... Okay, we're not from the house of Windsor. But that's what's said here about Melchizedek. That he is not a part of the household of Aaron. But yet he is still a high priest. And what's the point of all of that? Well, verse 4 tells us the point. See how great this man was. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. The point of all of this is that Melchizedek is one of the greatest figures in all of the Old Testament. You probably never thought about that before, but he is. You know, we think about Abraham. Now, Abraham, now that's a guy, that's one of the great figures in all of the Old Testament. But did you notice when we read verse 1? Melchizedek was the one blessing Abraham. You know, when you are in such a superior position to where you are the one giving a blessing to Abraham, you're somebody. You are an important person. And then furthermore, as we just read there in verse 4, Abraham paid tithes to him. That made Melchizedek superior not only to Abraham, But by extension, that made Melchizedek superior to all of Abraham's children and all of Abraham's descendants. Drop down and look at verse 9. In verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, that was the priestly tribe, that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What the Hebrew writer is saying in these verses to his audience is that, hey, you guys, you, you folks, are you're all impressed with Abraham. You're all impressed with folks that are part of this Levitical priesthood. I'll tell you somebody who's even more impressive than all of them. Let me tell you about Melchizedek. Now, maybe right here, what we ought to do is we ought to just step back for a moment and let's think about the recipients of this letter that we know as the book of Hebrews. This book is called Hebrews because... It is addressed to a bunch of Hebrews. It is addressed to people who had probably grown up in the Hebrew faith. These are people who had been, they'd been Jews. Which means that they had been accustomed, they had probably been trained ever since their youth, to think about the high priest and the priestly office as being, as being kind of the most important figure in all of Israel, in all of Judaism. The high priest was one of the most respected, one of the most venerated officials in their particular religious world. The high priest, for example, was the one who served as the head of the Sanhedrin council. Understand what that means? That means that that made that man functionally the equivalent of the president of Judea, the prime minister of Judea, if you will. That's an important man. 
Furthermore, the high priest was the guy who was in charge of everything that happened in the temple. All of the worship that happened in the temple. All of the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. He was in charge of that. He was responsible for all that. Arranged for all of that. On top of all of that, once a year, the high priest, he was the one man on the entire planet who was privileged to be able to go into that most holy place where he would then sprinkle blood that was necessary in order to make atonement for the people. You put all that together... You're talking about an impressive fellow. You're talking about the high priest. That's an important guy. Can you imagine maybe if you had been in Jerusalem, maybe as a, as a, as a maybe as a young person, and maybe the, maybe kind of the procession of people are walking down the street and you hear a voice saying, make way, make way, the high priest is coming through. And all of a sudden he comes bustling by with all of his big entourage and he's got on all of his priestly vestments and garments and it's just, it's amazing just to look at the spectacle. And maybe as a child, you say to your mom, your dad, you say, well, who was that? And they say, oh, that, that was the high priest. The Hebrew writer is saying here in Hebrews 7, hey, you think that's somebody? Ah, that's not really anybody. I'll show you somebody. Take a look at Melchizedek. Now that's somebody who's great. Here's somebody who was a king and a priest. No earthly priest from the family of Aaron could ever say that about themselves. Melchizedek was greater than all of them, even greater than Abraham. And what the Hebrew writer is saying here is he's saying, Melchizedek, that's a guy you need to keep your eye on. And then his most important, the point he's really wanting to make is, is that Jesus, Jesus is after his order. Boy, I just flung that right at you, Luke. I just was determined to get your attention there. Thank you. In Hebrews chapter 7, drop down to verse 14 now. In verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Do you see there that according to the priestly lineage, just like Melchizedek, Jesus couldn't be a priest, not after the flesh. Jesus was from the wrong tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Jesus didn't have the priestly lineage that was necessary in order to be a priest after the flesh. Verse 15 though, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was appointed by God to that position. And so after all that people would have thought in New Testament times of the earthly high priest, how high up that he was lifted and thought of in people's minds, how the respect that he was given, all the things that was, that was done on his behalf, the Hebrew writer says here that Jesus, he is worth infinitely more than any of them. He is a better high priest. He is like Melchizedek in that he is greater than all of them. Now, I began this lesson by saying that not a lot is said about the idea of Jesus as high priest. And maybe the reason we don't say much about that, maybe the reason that we don't think about that an awful lot is because that just didn't seem like something we can really relate to. Maybe we just really can't appreciate all of this because... 
Well, because we don't have an earthly high priest on this earth today. There's no position within the New Testament church that really even begins to compare to the high priest. And so it's hard for us to totally relate to the importance of what the Hebrew writer is trying to get across here. Maybe the best thing that we could do, maybe the best analogy we could use would be maybe if we were talking to like a Roman Catholic. And we said, hey, the Pope, you guys, you got lift the Pope up on a, on a pedestal there. Hey, this guy, this guy's greater than the Pope. What? Greater than, boy, that, that, that's, that, that's amazing. Or maybe if you were talking to a Muslim and you said, hey, you guys are all about Muhammad. Well, Muhammad, well, he's somebody. But I'll tell you what, this guy is really somebody. He's better and greater than Muhammad. What? Greater than Muhammad? That's what the writer is trying to get across to these Jewish Christians. Just like Melchizedek was greater than any of the high priests that had descended from Aaron, Jesus is greater. No, in fact, Jesus is the greatest. Because the leader of Christianity, he's not some man. No, the leader of Christianity has an indestructible life. He continues on and on and on. He is the Son of God, a priest forever. You really... You really can't get any better than that. Especially when we stop to think about what exactly the priest and the high priest did. Now, if you're like me, I know that growing up and how I was taught, whenever I heard the word priest, my immediate reaction is usually, ah, ah, priest. Come on, let me talking about priest. And you know why that is, don't you? Because that term priest, as it's used in our world today, it usually conjures up an image in our mind of those officiants in the Roman Catholic priest system. I always immediately, I hear the word priest, and I immediately picture the guy in the big black robe. He's got the clerical garb on. He's got the little white square collar thing there. And he's the guy who administers communion to all of the worshipers. And he's the one who officiates the Saturday night mass services. And you come and you sit in the box and you confess all of your sins to this guy. And so ever since I was a little kid, I've been taught, we don't need priests like that. We don't want priests like that. And so in my mind, priests, thumbs down, don't want them, don't need them, don't need those guys. I can read 1 Peter 2 verse 9, and it tells me that as a Christian, I am a priest. I don't need anybody being my priest. And I must confess to you that even when I think about the Levitical priesthood that actually was an authorized thing once upon a time, I immediately start thinking about how the sacrifices that they offered We're still insufficient. We'll even read about that this week in Hebrews chapter 10. And so because of some of those stigmas in my mind, my knee-jerk reaction about priest is, nope, nope, don't need them, don't need anything to do with priests. But if we place ourselves back in Bible times, try to place ourselves in the shoes of someone who was the recipient of this letter originally, we would understand that priests, priests were not villains. Priests were not the symbol of this corrupt religious empire that centered and located over in Rome in the Vatican. No, the priests were special servants of God. They were appointed by God in His law and they were given a very important role of service. Do you remember in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan? 
It talks there about how the priest and the Levite, they came and they saw the man in the ditch and then they passed by on the other side. Really the whole gist of that parable, what makes that parable work, is the play on the fact that people in New Testament times, they had great esteem for priests. People in Jesus' day, they liked the priests. They looked up to priests. And so to hear that the priest would pass by on the other side, it was shocking to people. And that's why when the Hebrew writer sends this letter, and he tells these Jews about a new covenant, a better covenant, his listeners would have been thinking, okay, part of this covenant means that we, we don't have a priest anymore. We don't have those guys who do all that priestly stuff that we need them to do on our behalf. Somebody says, well, what exactly, what kind of things are we talking about? What kind of things did priests do for the people? Well, for one, the priests played a very big role in teaching the people the law of God. Would you look in verse 11? In verse 11, the writer says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Priests helped in imparting the Word of God to God's people. That's an important job. Furthermore, as we kind of already alluded to this morning, the priests were the guys who officiated in the sacrificial worship system. That is, they're the ones who help people. When they came to the temple and they brought their animal to offer a sacrifice to God for their sins and offering of some kind, they're the ones who went before the Lord on behalf of the people. In other words, the priests served as the channel for spiritual life. They appeared on behalf of the people before God. In fact, the next time that you're reading Leviticus just for fun, and I know there's not many people who read Leviticus just for fun, but the next time you are reading Leviticus, just start underlining all the places and all those moments in that book where the expression, before the Lord, appears. Because that's what the priests did. They were always offering a sacrifice for someone else before the Lord. They were putting someone's guilt offering on the altar before the Lord. They were making atonement for someone before the Lord. The priest's primary job was to represent people before the Lord. They were the ones who helped to connect folks to God. That seems like that would be a pretty important job, wouldn't it? Remember, when we're talking about the forgiveness of sin, First of all, there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22. But then secondly, you need to remember, if you want forgiveness of your sins, you can't do that yourself. You can't take care of that on your own. And why? Because you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You need someone else to go before the Lord for you. And that's what the priests did. That's why they were so important. In fact, once a year on that Day of Atonement, that's what the high priest did. He went in to make atonement for the sins of the people. They intervened on your behalf so that you could be right with God. Now I think right here, understanding that, that priests are the ones who serve as that channel of blessing, that channel of spiritual life between the worshiper And God Himself, I think we need to just camp right here for a moment and think about that. If I am going to be right with God, I need somebody who will do that for me. Isn't that right? Don't you need somebody who will do that for you? Someone who will be that spiritual channel, that go-between between you and God? Think about it. I know who I am. 
I'm a sinner. I can't go before the Lord on my own. I need somebody who will do this for me. So who can I get to go before the Lord for me? I realize what I've done. I violated the commands of my Heavenly Father. Can you imagine maybe a man who he's led a rebellion against the king? He's tried to oust the king. He's tried to overthrow the government. Maybe even tried to assassinate the king. But then he gets caught. And so now he's standing outside the throne room waiting to be brought in. And somebody says to him, Oh, why don't you, why don't you just go on in there to the king and just say you're sorry. Just go on in there and just, just say, Hey, king, would you please be merciful to me and just forgive me of this. What's that man going to say? That man's going to say, I can't do that. I can't just go in there and just expect that he's going to forgive me and be merciful to me. I can't do that. Do you know what I've done? I've rebelled against Him. I've rebelled against His law. I can't go in there because He'll kill me. And in much the same way, that's where you and I are spiritually with the Lord. We can't just go in there on our own. We need somebody who will go in there for us. We need somebody who does have that ability. We need a go-between. We need somebody who can appear on our behalf. We need we need a priest. Now somebody's maybe thinking, well Josh, didn't you just say like, I don't know, seven minutes ago that you didn't need no priest, you didn't want no priest? And yes, I did say that. I do not want nor do I need an earthly priest. I do not want nor do I need some human being who serves as a go-between between me and the Lord. That particular system of doing things has changed. Verse 12 tells us that. What I need, what you need, is the priest. We need the great high priest. We need Jesus Christ to go before the Lord and intercede on our behalf. That's verse 22. This makes Jesus, verse 22, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, just like the priest of old, Jesus is that channel of spiritual life. I cannot barge into that throne room of God and demand that He give me some of that mercy and grace and forgiveness. No. I am entirely and completely dependent on the priest to do that. I am dependent upon Him to act on my behalf. And in fact, when we talk about Jesus as high priest... He is uniquely qualified to do that. Verse 26 now. For it was indeed fitting that we would have such a high priest. Notice how Jesus is described. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. The writer is saying here that Jesus, He is the perfect high priest. And as the Hebrew writer is writing these things to a group of people who would have been discouraged, I think this is something that they would have needed to hear. This is something that they would have wanted to hear. Because these people were probably all too familiar with many of the imperfections 
that often traveled along with the office of the high priest. By the time of the New Testament, the high priesthood had become somewhat of a, somewhat of a political football just being tossed around. If you had enough money, you could actually buy your way into that position. Even if you were not of the family of Aaron, even if you were not of the tribe of Levi, if you would write a check big enough, you could be the high priest. In fact, by the time of Jesus, many of you already know this, there were actually two high priests. Annas and Caiaphas. Because the Romans had removed Annas and they had stuffed Caiaphas in that position, whether the Jews liked it or not. And in fact, the Jews didn't like it, but there wasn't anything they could do about that. And so these people living during this time in the first century, They would have known what it was like to have a corrupt man serving in that role as high priest. You just think about that. If your service to God, if it depends entirely on that man, on that priest, that official, and you know that that man, he is wrong. He is corrupt. He's wearing all of the priestly garments. He's going through all of the priestly rituals. But he shouldn't be doing that. That's a tough spot to be in. So how encouraging then would it be to get a letter from this guy, the Hebrew writer, who says, hey, you're not ever going to have to worry about that again. You're not ever going to have to worry about this changing musical chairs of who's going to be the high priest today and who's going to be the high priest tomorrow. No. We have the perfect high priest now. And he will never be disqualified. He will never die. He will never sin. He is... He is the Son, the Son of God, verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a Son, a Son who has been made perfect forever. I would have you to please notice there in verse 27 that it was indeed the responsibility of the priest to offer sacrifice for the people. We've already talked about that this morning. And it was something, as verse 27 says, it was something that went on daily at the temple. Constantly the priest was having to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. But you know what? Just as there were some ups and downs with who it was that was serving in the role of the high priest... This audience in Hebrews, they probably were also keenly aware of some of the ups and downs that accompanied the making of sacrifices. For example, in 582 B.C., the Babylonians burned the temple of the Lord to the ground. Well, what do we do now? Where do we go to bring our sacrifices to God so that we can be made right with God? There's no holy place for the high priest to go in on that day of atonement and make atonement for my sins. The place that we do that, it's ashes now. It's rubble. What are we going to do? Or what about a little bit later when the temple was rebuilt in 167 B.C.? That's in that time between the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew. There was a Greek king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who showed up to Jerusalem and he decided he'd be cute by going and offering a pig on the altar of the Lord to defile it. And then to make matters even worse, he decided to go right into the most holy place and defile that too. Well, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to offer now? The altar has been desecrated. What are we to do? 
And in fact, it would be not long after the book of Hebrews was written that Roman legions would come to Jerusalem and yes, they would burn the temple of the Lord down again. What do we do? What are we going to do to sacrifice to the Lord and be right with Him? And so you see, that whole process of sacrificing, it just encountered problems time and time again. But the Hebrew writer says in verse 27 that part of the good news of Christianity is that Christians never have to worry about that again. Because Jesus Christ, He offers sacrifice. Our great high priest, He offered not just a sacrifice, He offered the greatest sacrifice. It was a sacrifice so awesome that it only had to be offered one time for all time. Jesus offered Himself to be our atoning sacrifice. That makes Him the greatest high priest of all. Now, having looked at those ideas this morning, and when I originally made my PowerPoint, it had all kinds of stuff on it, and I didn't have to simplify it down to just these four ideas this morning. You might be thinking, looking at that, you might be thinking, Josh, well, okay... See that, and I see how that chapter there in Hebrews chapter 7, I see how that probably would have been, would have been helpful and encouraging to, to those people living in that time and coming out of Judaism. I get all of that, but I don't know. I still don't really see how Jesus is the high priest, how, how that's supposed to be so encouraging to me today. And you know what? You're not going to see it. You're not going to see it until you see your need to have a high priest. I think that we have made a mistake. And I don't know if this is necessarily something that just goes on in churches of Christ, or maybe this is a mistake amongst all of Christendom. But I think we've made a mistake by just consigning the concept of the priesthood to the, well, that's just an Old Testament thing, and that's not really relevant to any of us today at all. Listen to me very carefully. Having a high priest is not outdated. It is not some relic of an antiquated past back during the time of, I don't know, Moses and when people all walked around in sandals. No, we still need a channel of blessing to spiritual life, don't we? We still need someone who will offer sacrifice for our sins. We still need a high priest. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is that high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, he still saves to the uttermost, always living to make intercession for his people. In fact, let me make that very, very simple this morning. Jesus goes before God for you. That's what that says to us. He is the perfect high priest who opens up the way to God. In fact, he is the way to God so that we can be in a right relationship with him. That is strong encouragement at the very core and foundation of who and what we are as the children of God. And so the Hebrew writer says in chapter 8 and in verses 1 and 2, he says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister, a servant in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. If you have ever been discouraged, if you have ever thought to yourself, I just, I don't know, 
I just don't think I'm going to make it. Talking about that majesty, I just don't think I'm going to make it to that majesty in heaven. Yes, you are. Because Jesus is your high priest. He's making intercession for you. He saves to the uttermost. If you've ever thought to yourself, I'm, I'm just so weak. Such, I just mess up all the time. I'm so sinful. I don't know why I even try. Maybe I ought to just give up on this Christianity thing. Don't do that. Jesus is your high priest. He is pulling for you. He is working on your behalf. Maybe you've never even started that life as a Christian. Because maybe what you've told yourself is you've said, man, the Christian life, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can when you realize that you have a high priest who is helping you each and every day. Maybe you are a Christian. And you know that there's sin in your life. And maybe it's the kind of sin that you've just told yourself, I just don't think God will forgive me of that. I sure think there's any way that God would forgive me of what I've done. Don't think that. Jesus is the high priest that laid down His own life. It was the only sacrifice possible that could have made it so, so that we could be forgiven of any and every sin. We will turn to Him in repentance. You see, as we read Hebrews, and especially as we read Hebrews 7, it's not just those Jews way back then who needed to be encouraged by knowing that Jesus was serving them. And I want to say as well that that serving that Jesus does, it's not a past tense thing, like He did it one time all the way back on the cross and He's not doing anything anymore, no. Jesus serving as high priest is a present tense thing. It is something that He is doing right now. That is your high priest. His name is Jesus. And He is the Christ. Now maybe there's something pulling at you right now, even as we, even as we speak. Maybe what's pulling at you right now is there is this need within you to confess Jesus Christ as God's Son and to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins as Acts 2.38 instructs. Maybe what's pulling at you right now is the need to repent of sin that is evident in your life, brother or sister. Maybe what's pulling at you right now, though, is maybe just the need to to ask for, for prayers and for encouragement because you are feeling discouraged. We want you to know as we extend the invitation right now, we're standing ready to help you in whatever way that we can. But we realize that we are merely instruments, we are merely tools in the hands of the Master. Because at the end of the day, the one who is really doing the work is Jesus, the great high priest. Can we help you this morning? Will you come to Him? He is ready to make intercession for you so that you can be right with God. We can help you to that end. Would you make your way down front? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.